Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. I'm Michael Cromer, Product Marketing Manager here at ARC. On today's episode of FYI, we'll be featuring the February 2nd edition of In the Know, the monthly video series with ARC CEO and CIO, Kathy Wood. On this particular episode of In the Know, Kathy was joined by ARC's Chief Futurist, Brett Winton. Together, they discussed technological convergence, artificial intelligence, and they gave a sneak peek into this year's Big Ideas Report, which is available now on arc-invest.com. This month, we again responded to a few requests by supplementing the episode with charts and data to help illustrate ARC's perspective on and outlook for the global economy. While these charts are visual and this is an audio podcast, we invite you to go to arc-invest.com to watch the full video if you're interested to see those charts. As always, Kathy then discusses fiscal policy, monetary policy, market signals, economic indicators, and innovation. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Greetings, everyone. This is Kathy Wood, uh, CIO, CEO of ARK Invest, and it's Employment Friday. Well, it is Employment Friday, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, we'll, I'd like to introduce you once again to our chief futurist, uh, Brett Winton, and we'll go over some of the slides from our big ideas. We launched our, or we published Big Ideas this week, uh, and you can find it at arc-invest.com, all 163 pages. Uh, lots of work uh, and original research uh, going into a piece uh, that has become very important uh, to us as um, sort of a staging ground for uh, communicating with you. And, and then we'll go back into economics as usual, um, focusing especially on monetary policy. All right, so uh, Employment Friday. Uh, the headlines uh, were very strong. Uh, Non-farm payroll employment came out at 353,000. Um, and uh, that was nearly double what was expected, uh, 185,000. And even more important, perhaps, if you believe these numbers, uh, is that there was an upward revision to the previous month, 117,000 uh, upward revision to 333,000. Uh, that's pretty astonishing. So the, the two months together, December and January, which are very seasonal months, of course, uh, when you combine them, uh, the employment was up 686,000. That's a booming economy. Or is it? Well, household employment. So non-farm payroll uh, it surveys corporations, companies. And household employment surveys households and tends to capture more small businesses. Uh, so household employment was down 31,000 in January. And the previous month, December, it was down 683,000. So the combination of those two months, down 714,000. So which is right? Honestly, it's... Uh, this is a schizophrenic report. Um, Hedgeye put out a report today on, I think they called it a ridiculous uh, employment report. And they noted that full-time employment over the last year, the past year, 
has gone nowhere. In fact, it's down a bit. Part-time employment is up 870,000. Uh, this is not this is not a strong sign out there unless everyone's going into the gig economy, uh, Uber, Airbnb, and so forth. Now, the other controversial uh, statistic that, that came out with this report was average hourly earnings. It was up 0.6%, so 5% at an annual rate. Uh, it had been running 0.3%, or roughly 3.5% at an annual rate. Uh, on a year-over-year -year basis, it now is uh, up 4.5%. Previous month, it had been up on a year-over-year -year basis by 4.1%. So the Fed's not going to like that, unless they focus on the productivity numbers that have come out recently, which are extremely strong and would suggest to us that many of the breakthroughs in technology, especially AI, are starting to impact the economy on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh, the non-farm productivity is up 2.7%. So 4.5 uh, minus 2.7 is uh, roughly, I guess, one. Let me do the arithmetic there. 1.8%. Uh, so that's below the Fed's 2% target. Uh, so that's very interesting. Another interesting statistic in this report, which may have been weather-related, um, was that the average work week dropped six-tenths of a, of a percent. The only time that uh, steep a decline happens is either in bad weather or a recession. And uh, so we may have both in this rolling recession that we've been talking about. Um, I'm taking this one a little more seriously because in December, meaning seriously than just weather, in December, it also was down 0.3%. So that's two consecutive months. Um, and we're also very focused on real-world data that's been coming out. Uh, you see that UPS is laying off 12,000 people. You see a lot of layoff announcements. Uh, and you see, and one of the reasons you're seeing these announcements is revenue growth for many companies has gone negative. In fact, in what I would call the traditional world or the old world, the non-digital world, um, we're seeing negative revenue growth, 3M minus 4.5% year over year. That's volume and price down. That's the equivalent of nominal GDP. Um, UPS down 7.8% on a year over year basis. And these companies touch the world and maybe that's what's going on right now. China seems to be uh, in a downward spiral. Certainly its stock market is, is looking that way. And the statistics are, are disappointing. Perhaps the debt load associated with 20 years of buy the dip property um, transactions in China um, reached a, an untenable point. Uh, Many, many statistics out of China are, are negative. And Europe, by some measures, is in recession. So maybe these multinationals are suffering more because of what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, but I do think we are not isolated from the rest of the world. So again, lots of confusion. And anyone who's been listening to In the Know for a while, um, knows that uh, I've been saying it's going to be very confusing, very confusing. And uh, this is just one indication. Just one more thing before we, uh, before I introduce you or reintroduce you to Brett. Um, when I first started in the business um, in the late 70s, I was in college, um, 
I heard portfolio managers back then talking about the worst mistake they had made in their lives, their professional lives. Um, in the early 70s, after we, after we went off the gold exchange standard and all hell broke loose, prices started going crazy. We had the oil embargo, quadrupling of oil prices. Um, most economic indicators were in nominal terms. They didn't break out real from price or real from inflation. And uh, because of that, they looked at earnings exploding and they could not understand why the market was going down. And they kept buying the dip, buying the dip. It was a big mistake because what was happening back then was uh, inflation was the only reason earnings were going up. And the market doesn't pay for uh, earnings caused by inflation. And so that's when we started separating inflation from real growth. And we've been there ever since. Today, we might be on the opposite side of that problem. Now, most uh, portfolio managers, as they're gauging the health of the economy, they look at real GDP. And, and inflation is just a separate uh, metric that they know uh, the market doesn't pay for. So, you know, um, well, that's okay until you run into negative money growth caused by, I mean, negative revenue growth caused by uh, falling prices, companies losing pricing power, and uh, unit volumes not being that strong. So, um, again, we're in this uh, topsy-turvy world, and we think we're there because of a, a, a lot of, uh, because of what is going on with disruptive innovation, which is highly deflationary uh, and, and is going to create a lot of creative destruction, which will also be deflationary. One is good deflation, as deflation associated with innovation, and the other is bad deflation. So um, we do think uh, that the price indicators, the broad-based indicators like the CPI and the PPI will enter ne negative territory this year. We've been talking about the bigger risk being deflation for quite some time, and uh, the companies are now starting to report uh, some of them, both inflation and, and prices coming down and weakness in underlying economic activity. Uh, and we always say innovation solves problems, and we think innovation is going to solve uh, one of the biggest problems that companies are going to have in the next few years, and we think that's deflation. Uh, deflation is going to hit margins and could hit them hard. Uh, and we think innovation... Um, will uh, will help corporations who embrace it aggressively, especially in this new AI age. So with that, I'd like to uh, introduce you to Brett Winton. Um, he's been on uh, In the Know once before, so maybe this is a reintroduction. Brett is our chief futurist. Brett and I have been working together since uh, 2007. We worked together at our previous firm. And, uh, and with just a short break there, um, uh, Brett came and joined me at uh, ARK Invest in 2014. Uh, so 10 years into this, Brett, here we are. And here you are uh, to take uh, our viewers into uh, this techno technological explosion that we're experiencing and is part of the reason we're going to be debating about economic statistics for the next few years. So, yeah, uh, yeah why don't we start with uh, this chart? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to hear kind of like you talking about how choppy the macro environment is, because I, I think over a longer time frame, actually, there's you know profound reason for optimism and kind of like the technology and the and kind of like the optimistic kind of macroeconomic impact it'll have um, creates the near-term choppiness it, it, in some ways, you know, because like the, the 
the statistics coming off the companies that are being disruptive, disrupted might kind of overwhelm the underlying um, productivity gains and and price trends that we'll we'll see clear through the end of this decade. Uh, in some ways, you know, there's this saying in tech, the the second half of the chessboard, and the idea is that if you've ever heard the um, analogy of, um, or it's like a, a story, an allegory of a king who um, accepts a service from a, an advisor and the advisor says, oh, you can just pay me by putting a, a grain of rice on this first chess square and then doubling it for each subsequent square. And um, the king's like, this sounds like a great deal. And it only begins to get burdensome as the compounding continues to happen as you move into the second half of the chessboard where suddenly he needs to produce grains of rice that are, you know, equivalent to number of like stars in the sky or atoms in the universe. Like it, it just totally overwhelms um, kind of like the equation. And I do think in technology, we're actually, this decade is going to feel like the second half of the chessboard where we've been getting gains, technologies have been developing somewhat independently uh, and now kind of we've reached a stage where technologies are ping-ponging off each other, converging in a way that is creating kind of explosive growth and opportunity in multiple different technology areas at once. Uh, and that's captured in, in this chart that's in our Big Ideas deck that actually goes back and looks at all general purpose technologies, which follow steep cost declines, they cut across sectors, and they're themselves platforms of innovation, and kind of systematically identifies them in history, uh, and then highlights the general purpose technology platforms that we think are, are really at a sweet spot of inflection today. So today it's energy storage, public blockchains, robotics, multi-onomic sequencing, and of course, artificial intelligence. They're all hitting critical stages of inflection. And if you look at how they stack up in superposition, um, we think that this is the most technologically momentous decade in history and, and even exceeding kind of 120 years ago or so when you had the telephone internal combustion engine and electrification happening at the same time. And I think like crucially, AI is accelerating even beyond our internal, very aggressive expectations for how quickly it would happen. And AI serves as kind of like the central catalyst for all of these technologies, sometimes in really profound ways. And so what it's, what it's doing is it's actually pulling some of those things that were going to happen maybe in the 2030s forward into the 2020s. Uh, robotics in particular, uh, this year versus last year, our expectations for kind of like robots that can operate in the world and, and deliver profound productivity advances have increased. Uh, and so you, you can see this chart, you should read it as those five platforms that I mentioned, yellow public blockchain, green multi-omic sequencing, purple AI, uh, that blue color energy storage, and then red robotics. Um, from the bottom, those are the categories that are catalyzing the technologies coming across. And so that central dark purple box is kind of the, the, um, the AI catalyzing other AI technologies, but then um, AI, there's a strong purple central strike going through because AI serves as a catalyst across the different technology categories. So from the perspective of, hey, I would love innovation to be really remarkable and meaningful. Um, if I had a choice of any technology that I could essentially turn up the velocity on, it would be artificial intelligence. And lo and behold, actually, it's happening faster. Uh, and so this chart shows kind of um, a, a forecasting site's estimates for when artificial general intelligence will be available and demonstrated. And it has a, a very specific definition for artificial general intelligence because people tend to goal, move the goalposts here, but it's basically like, could you be in conversation with one of these things for two hours and you couldn't tell whether it was human or not? Conversation or images or typing or text. Can it put together like a really complicated kind of model car, uh, meaning like you go from instructions, think of this like the IKEA furniture test. Could an AI system like actually take the, AI, the IKEA instructions, even more complicated IKEA instructions and successfully put together the cabinet for you? Because I fail on that, you know, call it 50% of the time. Uh, and then the third is like how in a bunch of different expert areas, can it pass the equivalent of um, certification tests for like the medical licensing exam for for um, lawyers uh, and and so is it basically at a 
higher than human level or, or 90th percentile human level in a bunch of different expert areas. And so in the chart, you can see just in 2020, we thought this capability was 80 years away. And with each subsequent advance in GPT-3 and what uh, Google is demonstrating through DeepMind and GPT-4, suddenly it's like, oh gosh, this is closer. It goes from 80 to like roughly 30 years to 20 years. And now here we are today and it's by the end of the decade. And that's even if the forecasts are well-tuned now, but you know the odds of Meta coming out with a model that blows people's minds or the next OpenAI model coming out and being like, whoa, this is even more performant. I mean, they seem roughly higher. So um, like if you adjust for the way the, the forecasters um, expectations have drifted, it's really, you know, before the end of the decade, 2027, 2028, you should have these wildly performant models that don't just impact, hey, I can chat with a chatbot and it's compelling, but also will improve the capabilities of humanoid robots. Also will make it um, more likely that we can identify the key molecules in any um, rare disease and target a drug right after them efficiently. That will make it um, you know, more likely that we can develop and audit like broad-based smart contracts that will allow financial functions to auto-execute without needing kind of a central counterparty like a bank to extract its, its VIG for facilitating that transaction. And so kind of it should accelerate certainly AI and our expectations for AI and kind of all of the technologies that we focus on. Uh, and so, Kathy, do you want to talk about kind of like the macroeconomic potential yeah. impact here? Sure. Yes. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, this actually, this chart came out of our big ideas last year. And what you see here are, um, is the impact of technology on real GDP growth when there are big breakthroughs. And so, as Brett mentioned, the, the breakthroughs in the uh, early 1900s, telephone, electricity, internal combustion engine um, created a step function increase in growth. And you can see it here. Um, uh, the, the previous years, back to the 1500, the average uh, real GDP growth rate, we think, <laughs> was, and, and Brett did this research, 0.6%. Uh, there was a five-fold increase in growth thanks to those three major platforms and we ended up at 3% growth on average uh, for the past 120 years. And um, you can see now what uh, forecasters are expecting um, from now until the year 2040. They expect a deterioration in growth from that 3% range to 2.6%. Um, and what do we expect? Well, we, we believe these five platforms are much more provocative, and especially with AI, the primary catalyst or the biggest catalyst, uh, that, that the, the, the step function in growth could be quite significant. We've held ourselves back here. This is a log chart. We've held ourselves back here. And uh, you see 8.5% is uh, the expectation. But just think about that. Do you hear any economist out there? This is real GDP growth. Do you hear any analyst or uh, economist out there uh, assuming that real GDP growth will move to the uh, upper single digits uh, in the years ahead? No, I don't hear anyone saying that. Now, one way it could happen... Uh, that would take nominal GDP growth lower is if prices uh, uh, were to come down fairly dramatically. And we're seeing in, a, in artificial intelligence on the training side, um, costs are declining 75% per year. We thought just two years ago, we thought it was 60%, now 70%. And then on the inference side, we're seeing cost declines per year of something uh, north of 85%. So uh, these, this is a massive deflationary force that we think is going to sweep around the globe, and maybe nominal GDP growth will be, you know, 6%, uh, with prices falling um, by 2.5% per year and getting us to that real, real GDP uh, growth of 8.5%. 
Um, Brett, I don't know if you wanted to add anything more to that slide. Yeah, I, I think just generally it is consistent with economic history that in you hit a technological transition and then the natural rate of growth of the economy shifts in a structural way. Uh, and um, so just on the long historical perspective, you'd say, hey, it looks like that could happen now. Um, and you could have also said that 10 years ago and it didn't yet. So the reason I'm more confident now is not just because of the long historical perspective, but also because of the practical impact of the technologies that we are seeing today. If you look across, like if our expectations about robo-taxi are right, and now it's very clear to me that this is a win, not if, um, system and it's a question of how quickly they can scale and can Tesla do it on its footprint, in which case they should be able to scale very quickly. That would be um, number amongst the most meaningful macroeconomically impactful technologies of all time, uh, including like comparable to the steam engine in terms and, and, and it fits into a framework where it uh, will clearly be recognized into the macroeconomic statistics where it's like consumers will decide rather than you know, driving the vehicle they have in their garage, they'll pay for this service. And so a, a previous behavior driving that wasn't recognized in markets because I'm not getting paid for being a driver, even though I'm an amateur driver all the time, suddenly becomes something that people are paying for. And so it'll flow through into uh, kind of the production output and into the income statements of those autonomous platform providers. And so um, kind of you stack up that and expectations for robotics and even marginal, much lower than we have expectations for AI and AI software. And you end up with um, a GDP growth that's, that's consistent and even in excess of what's implied by this slide. Uh, and so I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of compelling evidence that this decade is gonna be remarkable from a macroeconomic perspective. Right, and it should translate into um, very nice returns for these technologies. As you can see, uh, we, if you look at the market today, um, roughly 19 trillion of the 117 trillion in global equity market cap is associated with disruptive innovation. So let's, let's say a, a little more than 15%. Um, if we're right, and, and with Brett's guidance, our analysts have uh, you know, built the building blocks uh, for us to be able to say this, uh, if we're right, that 19 trillion is going to scale to 220 trillion uh, during the next really seven, eight years, seven years. So that's a 42% compound annual rate um, of return. Um, and whereas the rest of the world, we see appreciating little or nothing at all. Why would that be? It's back to that creative destruction. The, the, the traditional world order is going to change radically. And uh, the, the traditional benchmarks, the broad-based benchmarks, whether it's the S&P 500, MSCI World, and um, uh, the NASDAQ, for example, um, they're, they're not going to be able to keep up with this. And, and one of the reasons, we learned an important lesson from, from Tesla. The S&P did not put Tesla in that index until it had hit $500 billion in market cap. Why? Well, uh, two of their criteria uh, are uh, for a, a four-quarter moving average of profitability with the last quarter uh, profitable. Well, Tesla didn't hit that, I think, until 2020 or 21. I, f I forget. I think it was 21, was it, Brett? That sounds right. I'm yes. Sure. And just think, think about that. How many companies are bigger than that 500 trillion? And oh, by the way, most people who waited until the S&P gave them permission to move into Tesla are underwater right now because they're, as, as is always the case, with disruptive innovation, there's controversy and it has taken, uh, taken the stock down. So um, 
Anyway, so, so we're pretty excited. And as you can see, uh, we delineate uh, those growth rates by major innovation platform with robotics being uh, the, the fastest, uh, the fastest uh, growing. Uh, it's also at a very, very low base, industrial robots in particular, very low base. Um, whereas AI, 37%, uh, that is off of a substantially larger base. And just to give you a sense of the drama here, even for us, and all we do is focus on disruptive innovation. Um, in, I believe this was 2020, our expectation for the market cap of artificial intelligence out there um, in five years from now was... I think $40 billion. Now it's up to $400 billion. I know this there's is been a, a threshold. AI, AI hardware uh, spend yes. is what you're the, saying. The, yeah. the, the, the spending on artificial intelligence uh, hardware. Yeah. Um, and I think it includes the software too. Am I right? No, this is, this is just looking at the accelerator. So if you look at the accelerators in the data right. center and what we were expecting to be spent on accelerators in the data center, um, we, you know, we previously approached it and said, okay, well, this is how much is spent on servers. And uh, this is the share of servers that are going to be devoted to accelerators. And then the subset that's going to be spent on accelerators. Uh, and we ended up with a, a $40 billion number. Now AMD is saying that, hey, we think that there's going to be 400 billion um, by, right. I think it's 2027 spent on accelerators. And we have a, you know, we have an in excess of, I think $1.4 trillion on accelerators by 2030 is our official forecast or 1.3 perhaps. But in part of that is like, we, we opened up the model by saying, well, how much value is going to be delivered with AI software? And, um, you know, if, if I can, just like if I can deliver a robot to an, an Amazon or to a Tesla, and that can increase the productivity of their manufacturing base by X, they'll spend some fraction of X to install that robot, and then they'll get great ROI. It's the same with software and how it improves me and all of our analysts as knowledge workers. People pay for software that improves worker productivity. Uh, and if you look across all knowledge workers, there's almost $30 trillion in knowledge work wages that is going to be paid in 2030. So if you can in improve their productivity by multiples and just pay a fraction of that, you still end up with trillions of dollars, and in fact, more than $10 trillion in our estimation, of AI software spent to help knowledge workers and therefore you need a trillion dollars plus of AI chips to create that AI software. Uh, and, and so um, kind of rather than approaching it from like, hey, this is, a, this is IT spend and what people are gonna do, we approach it from this is the output of the technology that's gonna be installed and therefore the amount of kind of um, justifiable, really ROI positive hardware we need to support that. Uh, and you end up with a much larger market. So that begs the question, and before you leave us, uh, we're going to show one more quite provocative chart. It says it all. But before we go, I know this begs a question. You know, we have been shifting our emphasis from um, in, in our various strategies from uh, hardware centric. Uh, uh, that would be NVIDIA, uh, AMD, depending on the portfolio, um, it, towards software and towards companies that are going to capitalize on the productivity gains that um, that uh, we're going to that AI is going to deliver. Um, why would we be pulling away? Well, it's a little bit back to uh, the question we're talking about and the confusion that we expect to uh, see in 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 the next year around the cycle. Um, because believe it or not, even though AI is a force, it really is, we are seeing what we saw during uh, COVID. There's double and triple ordering uh, in a shortage uh, situation or, or perceived shortage situation uh, in COVID. We're, we're still suffering from uh, the aftermath of that. Uh, and, you know, even though this is a huge secular growth story, 
there are there's so much in the way of expectations now being built into the check the box uh, AI. And believe me, it's an important box. Uh, NVIDIA has done a magnificent job. We bought it from, uh, you know, from from uh, from the t time we started the company, we we're involved with it when it was five dollars. And just when we understood, we built it uh, enormously. Uh, so, but the, but it is subject to cycles, and 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 the last one was the crypto cycle. Two thousand seventeen couldn't get enough GPUs, uh, and uh, and there was double and triple ordering, and the stock in the uh, fourth quarter of two thousand eighteen was cut by two thirds. Now that's not going to happen this time because this AI wave is just so powerful. But the expectations do get ahead of themselves. We saw that with, you know, uh, uh, Alphabet, I guess, uh, earlier this week and AMD, just the expectations had gotten ahead and uh, you're going to have the, the the to and fro. But before we let uh, Brett go, uh, this is a chart that he drew to try and help people understand uh how provocative uh, this these breakthroughs in AI are. And so here it is. Yeah. So um, we talk about cost declines a lot at ARC and, and on AI in particular, it's the cost decline is happening more quickly than anything we've ever studied. So Kathy alluded to it, but um, cost to train a model we think is going to fall by four times now. Last year, we thought by three times per year, prospectively going forward through 2030, and on a real-time basis, costs are falling even faster than that for AI training, which is separate from the cost to actually deliver an AI model, which is called inference. And that's following at you know, 85 plus percent per year. But then that's also separate from what it means for the cost to do something within the business or human context at an in-application basis. And so here we looked back and said, well, what does it cost to produce written material? And if you go back to, it was 1894, uh, and looked at what the Pall Mall Gazette was paying its professional writers to write essays, it was inflation adjusted around $400, $500 a word. And then as you track kind of this data point of what do magazines pay people to write over time, it basically stayed in that spot, or $400 to $500 per thousand words, I should say. Mm -hmm. For, so, you know, a, a thousand word essay, you get $400 to $500. And it's been that way all the way to, to a, a few years ago, if you wanted to pay a writer to write a corporate blog post, you know, a thousand word corporate blog post, you pay 400 to $500 for, it's kind of like at the higher end of the, the spectrum for what you'd pay for, a, a, you know, a qualified experienced writer, somebody that would score well on the, on the graduate level exam, the GREs, for example. Well, uh, then GPT-4 scored basically like 50th percentile on the GREs and it costs uh, call it, I can't remember what's on the chart, 12 cents, 16 cents, 16 cents per thousand words. So you've gone from 400, $500 to 16 cents. Well, then Anthropic's Claude 2 model uh, scored 90th percentile on the GREs and it costs four cents. So we went from something, it was the same amount to produce written content for more than a century. Suddenly it falls 10,000 fold and it is now going to be on a cost decline trajectory. It's not like it's just going to plane off. Essentially written authored material is going to both be ubiquitous and abundant with all that is good and bad about that. As in you will have your own personal chatbot that you can chat to that will be, you know, really compelling and interesting and have all kinds of information to share with you. Uh, and you will be at risk of somebody, you know, kind of like infiltrating you pretending to be human when they're really not. And so I think that the, the implications for like businesses, um, humans, like all of these systems that we use where like kind of written and oral speaking ability is a mechanism by which we verify that this person is a person that I should pay attention to, uh, is just gonna get totally um, turned upside down by this. Mm -hmm. And it's not just gonna happen in the written word context. It's going to be image generation. It's going to be kind of ability to look at data sets and forecast the direction that they're going. So kind of like the, the, the ability to take like an idea and convert it into something that amplifies and spreads is going to be massively magnified here with all kinds of interesting implications.
Right. And uh, uh, on balance, what you just said sounds like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be bombarded. This is a disaster. I, I think the bottom line is we do think all of this will sort itself out. We'll, we'll figure out ways to uh, verify and all of that. But I, I, I think this is a, a true force for good technologies. The history of technology is we are very happy that uh, we're very happy that um, Elon Musk and others are are warning us about nefarious actors and what could go wrong here. Half of the solution is understanding the problem. Uh, and we know cybersecurity is booming. So a lot of people are paying uh, a lot to try and figure out the risks associated, but the opportunities associated uh, with AI are transformational. This this is going to be the biggest um, catalyst behind wealth generation uh, during the next five to ten years, and the and the super exponential uh, growth opportunities that it will enable. And if you want to learn more, uh, check out our uh, big ideas. It's on arc-invest.com. So thank you, Brett, very much. Sure. Uh, as, Wait, I as... want to add one. I, I want to add one more thing because it's an important okay. that that cost decline and the ability to generate written language. You can also invert it and say, what is the cost to process written information? And so, mm -hmm. like, it's transferable to one. Like, written language is also code. So, what is the cost to create software? What is yes. the cost to like? How many times have you clicked through an agreement on some very long document? And been like, oh yeah, this user agreement, whatever, without really having a mechanism by, you don't have the time to read that thing. But um, if you have an AI agent to be just basically like, how is this contract going to put me into trouble? And what kind of like terms should I avoid? Uh, or even if you think about all of the ways in which organizations structure contracts with each other to, to, to enter commercial relationships and how often that still ends up in the court where you're asking a judge to adjudicate between kind of gray areas in the contracting language all of that will get like more completely filled in um, by ai and so like the one of the promises of technology is to reduce the friction between interacting between agents corporations everything like you can imagine there's like the transaction friction is going to collapse in all kinds of different ways, both with AI and blockchain, I think that should like have yeah. a, a profound macroeconomic effect. And thank you, Kathy. Always love coming on In The Know. And yes, yeah. everybody download Big Ideas. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brett. Okay. Uh, so we'll go quickly through these other charts now because uh, time is short. Uh, so I'm going to focus on um, a subset of what we usually discuss. Uh, and so let's start with money supply. We usually talk about this. I showed this uh, last month, um, but you can see M1 growth, uh, M2 growth year over year is still negative. Again, we haven't been here since the uh, since the 1930s, and this is another deflationary force at work. We believe what's interesting about this negative number now is that it's against, uh, it's against a flat to negative number last year. And so this is now, we're entering the second year. Uh, and uh, I think that's very significant, especially now um, you're hearing about the regional bank crisis again. Um, there's another shock to the system. Uh, uh, more and more analysts are doing the work to figure out you know, which companies are at risk here as, um, as defaults proliferate. And, um, and, and that's a big problem. Uh, deposits continue to leave the banking system. Uh, and uh, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Um, so a very important consideration as we think about in, uh, inflation coming down. Uh, using this very rough correlation, uh, you can see inflation will come down into negative territory um, if we are right. And uh, we just gave you some very good examples of uh, collapsing prices. Uh, next chart, uh, here's the Fed funds rate, uh, which is what the Fed con controls in the green. 
and the CPI rate. And so you see the Fed um, took, took its time uh, before lifting rates as inflation was taking off because they thought it was transitory. And um, many are people saying they are, are saying they made a terrible mistake. We don't agree with that. Uh, we do think the the rise in inflation was uh, the function of not monetary policy, but a massive supply shock to the system called COVID and two wars now. So um, we believe that the inflation rate will go negative. So you can see the zero line there, which means that if the Fed funds rate stays at this level, and on this next chart, we're doing a ratio of those two, you'll see what's happened already, just soaring after deep negative, that was COVID, um, in real interest rates. And, and this is what the markets really do respond to. Real interest rates have moved up sharply. They're above I would say they're above the certainly above the average since uh, uh, 1990. Uh, they may be right in line with the average going all the way back here. But if we're right, and the and the the price, uh, I mean the the yes, the price indices turn negative on a year-over-year basis, uh, then we're talking about north of five percent, and we've only been there during the early 80s. Uh, and remember, back then, inflation was 15%. Inflation expectations were very high. Inflation expectations, we just got the University of Michigan report today, 2.9%. Back then, they were in the high single digits. Uh, so if we, are, if we believe that uh, prices are falling, this will go to 5 to 7.5% within the next year if the Fed does not change its spots. And uh, Chairman Powell this week came out and basically said, um, March is probably not a, a cut. Uh, so we'll have another few inflation readings. And some people believe that CPI will be stuck here for a while. Um, it may be, I don't know, there are lags in the CPI. It's quite the lagging indicator. Um, uh, but uh, I'll show you in a moment a chart that says, watch out below in terms of those prices. And and maybe the price indices are going to drop by much more than anyone now expects on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, this is one reason that might happen. This is the yield curve. Uh, it's still inverted. It got into the minus teens, and now we're back down at minus 30. Uh, and as you can see, we have not been there since the uh, early 80s as well. Again, that uh, was very stringent uh, monetary policy. Uh, it did get inflation down, but again, the starting point back then was 15%. Um, today, we're still negative uh, 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 money growth on a year-over-year -year basis, and inflation's 3%. Um, now, here is a, a, me a metric that suggests that the CPI is going to go perhaps deeply negative. Uh, this is the new tenant rent index, um, and the source here is Macrobond. Uh, and you can see on this basis, this goes back prior to the, uh, to the uh, financial meltdown in 08-09, and rents are falling um, more significantly now on this real-time metric uh, than they were back then. Uh, now, I believe in the CPI, rents are still up on a year-over-year -year basis, something like, I'm going to say 5%, roughly. Could be a little more, could be a little less. Uh, this is uh, minus 5%. And uh, we also know that there are a million uh, units in the multifamily uh, apartment space that are in the pipeline. They are, they're not on the market yet. Uh, and if you look back through history, the last time we saw that high a level was in the very speculative real estate days of the 70s. Uh, and uh, during that time, inflation really did um, absorb a lot of those units. 
but if we're right and rents are coming down here, uh, region to region, it may be different. But uh, if on balance nationwide, they're coming down, the assumptions that a lot of private equity made uh, pushing into real estate uh, in order to uh, in, a, in, in a search for higher yields and leveraging up even more to boost those yields, some of those assumptions are, are not going to be bailed out by, by rent inflation. They're just not. Uh, and so uh, watch out there. Uh, and then um, here, just to make sure we have a balanced view, um, the, the turmoil in the Middle East and, and the Red Sea with the Houthis and, and so forth has caused a backup in the freight uh, rate benchmark. Uh, so you can see how big the dislocation was during COVID. Now, interestingly, in the last few days, uh, this index has come down. Um, so, so we will see. I think it's a, a, a race between uh, the turmoil in the Middle East and uh, perhaps inventory corrections here globally um, because of the severe weakness in China, um, weakness in Europe, and even at the margin in the U.S. Uh, as well. Uh, and then on the next chart, uh, next page, you can see this is the global supply chain pressure index. Uh, and you can see it's basically in line with where it has been historically. Um, so again, uh, that may not be as big a problem. It certainly won't be as big a problem as COVID was. And then just a few more charts here. Just want to keep going back to this chart because so many people think we are in an inflationary period. But if you look at this chart, this is a commodity chart, and commodities are some of the first places you'll look for inflation. And you'll see the big inflation was actually uh, after the tech and telecom bust into 0809. That's when oil prices hit uh, $147. And we believe that happened because uh, during the late 90s, there were a number of reasons the Fed hit the accelerator a number of times. Um, uh, after the Russian uh, debt de default, I think that was in 97 or 98, um, we then had long-term capital management implode. And many people thought that could um, uh, cause a global financial crisis, the Fed included. So it eased for that reason, and it also eased because of Y2K, uh, the fear that as we hit the millennium, that computers around the world would shut down, activity would shut down because uh, they weren't set up to transition from a one handle to a two handle in terms of millennium. Uh, and so the big inflation was back then. If you look at this chart, there, there's been a deflationary undercurrent out there since then. And uh, we are today where we were in the early 80s in terms of this. And uh, someone said to me sh the other day, surely you're, you're saying this is adjusted for inflation. No, this is not adjusted for inflation. You can only imagine how low these commodity prices would be. And in fact, we'll do that for the next in the know. Adjust this for inflation to, to show you uh, how, how deflationary this is. And then uh, this chart, again, um, remarkable, uh, the correlation since, especially since uh, 08, 09, many people would say, of course, the correlation's there uh, at 0% interest rates. But the metals to gold ratio um, has correlated very highly with the 10-year Treasury bond yield. And so when the purchasing power of gold has gone down relative to metals, the purple line goes up, interest rates go up. When the purchasing power of gold uh, uh, goes up relative to metals, uh, the, the purple line goes down and interest rates have followed it until the Fed started tightening. This relationship broke down in early 22. Uh, it has 
the, the ratio has been falling or the gold, the purchasing power of gold relative to metals has been increasing. And that's very often in a risk-off environment uh, as long-term treasury yields have been rising or as they are right now, elevated relative to, to this uh, ratio. If you were just looking at this ratio and nothing else, you'd say, well, long-term interest rates should be closer to 2% than they are today to 4%. Uh, so continue to be struck by that uh, chart. I'm going to show the Bitcoin to gold ratio. Um, um, many people call Bitcoin digital gold. Uh, we would put it in that category, a store of value, uh, a risk-off asset. Uh, and last year during the regional bank crisis in March, uh, Bitcoin uh, shot up 40% as the KRE, the regional bank index, was imploding. And here again, the regional bank index is acting up. Uh, and after uh, a little bit of a correction, uh, after 11 ETFs were introduced, um, we are seeing Bitcoin catch a bit again. Uh, so this idea that it's a flight to quality or a flight to safety uh, is reasserting itself here. Uh, the, the reason we believe Bitcoin went down after the ETF, um, after the ETFs were introduced, is because there was a lot of anticipatory buying before uh, before Bitcoin or the ETFs came out. Uh, there was a bit of the sell on the news. These are the trading types who uh, just are, are very opportunistic in that way. Um, as you know, or if you've been listening to In the Know, uh, 15 million of the 19.5 million Bitcoin outstanding are in what we call strong hands. They're, they haven't moved their Bitcoin in more than 155 days. Uh, so, um, and, and this chart uh, just shows you that even relative to gold, uh, Bitcoin has been rising. It is, there's now a substitution into, uh, into Bitcoin. And uh, we think that is going to continue now that there is a much easier way, less friction-filled way to access Bitcoin. And uh, uh, you can check out in our big ideas uh, what we think the impact of institutional participation in this market is going to be on, on Bitcoin's price. And then just to throw uh, a, another wrinkle into the discussion, we are struck that credit default swaps, both for investment grade and high yield, are coming down. In this environment where for many companies, they're beginning to see revenues go down. That's very interesting to us. Um, but you can see how sharply this can move. In, in uh, late uh, 2018, there was a serious correction in, uh, in the stock market. I think it was the fourth quarter. And in, actually, back then, NVIDIA led the decline. It was uh, cut as I mentioned earlier, by two-thirds, and there was just this reverberation through all kinds of markets. What's going on here? Uh, and uh, credit default swaps uh, shot up pretty pretty um, sharply. And you can see what happened during COVID. And then again, you can see what happened in 21 and 22 as the Fed was talking about in 21, and then actually um, raising interest rates in 22. Lots of fear out there. Now there seems to be complacency building in, and it has to do with this soft landing uh, that seems to have become the consensus forecast. We do think that's going to be shaken up as companies lose pricing power and start laying more people off. And so we think this will reverse and, uh, and, and the flights to quality will get uh, another bid out there. Um, and we do think also, I'll just continue to give a plug for innovation-based strategies. They were absolutely creamed in here, certainly paid their dues while the, 
the NASDAQ and others were hitting all-time highs. Um, we think that, uh, that innovation-based strategies will hold in much better uh, because, as Brett uh, described, we've hit prime time for a, a lot of um, innovation. And uh, we think that uh, earnings and, and revenue growth rates are going to be protected from this rolling recession that we see because uh, our companies, for the most part, help companies with margin pressure solve that problem. So I guess I'll end there, um, encouraging you once again to take a look at Big Ideas uh, 2024. It's chock full of our original research. You, you're not going to see this research in many other places and certainly not concentrated in one place. So with that, I wish you a happy weekend, happy February, and I will see you again uh, next month, Employment Friday, at this time. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.